Welcome to the very first episode of I Think That Is Interesting with your host, myself, Ethan Wilder. It's me. Um, today, uh, we've got a good episode, I think, to start off. Uh, I'm really excited about the topic, and I think hopefully some other people find it exciting too. We'll see. I don't know. Currently, I'm recording this sitting in my closet of my bedroom. Don't really have a better space to do this, so we're doing it here. We're just going to roll with it, okay? Um, for episode one, we will be focusing on a book by world-famous artist who everybody knows, Andy Warhol. Lately, I've been very fascinated by Andy Warhol and everything he's kind of been about and just been watching a lot of his videos and looking at some of his writing. The excerpt we are going to be looking at today was one I was shown in one of my classes that I'm taking in university right now, where we were discussing Andy Warhol and his video art endeavors because it was a video art-based class. And it just got me really excited about Andy Warhol in general. I wanted to talk about him some more. So basically, today we're looking at his book, The Philosophy of Andy Warhol, From A to B and Back Again. The book was published in 1975 and was originally published by Harcourt Brace Jovanovich. And to quote goodreads.com to give you a little summary, in The Philosophy of Andy Warhol, which with the subtitle From A to B and Back Again, is less a memoir than a collection of riffs and reflections. He talks about love, sex, food, beauty, fame, work, money, and success. About New York, America, and his childhood in McKeesport, Pennsylvania. About his good times and bad in New York, the explosion of his career in the 60s, and his life among celebrities. The book was ghostwritten by Pat Hackett and edited by Bob Colicello. The book is comprised of interviews with Warhol held by Hackett alongside various conversations that Warhol himself taped between himself and Colicello and Bridget Berlin. Upon its release in September 1975, Andy Warhol took the book and toured all around the world. So that was just a little bit about the book itself. And basically, why I myself am so interested in it is because this podcast to me is it's about things that I myself am interested in and want to share. It's about my own personal ideas and thoughts and things going on in my head. And I felt this book would be an appropriate start to this podcast because of the nature of what it's about. It's about Andy Warhol's philosophies. It's about what he believed in. And I felt that was kind of suited sort of the topic of my podcast very nicely and I thought would be a good way to start it off. Aside from my already peaked interest with Andy Warhol as of late, I have here a about three, two and a half, I would say actually, page excerpt from the book itself. Uh, I've gone through it and I've read it and I've highlighted various points and quotes and things that I liked and wanted to share. And so basically I'm just going to end up going through this reading and share with all of you the different things that I thought were cool and explain why I thought that was cool. Yeah, so I guess we can just get started. Yeah, why not? Let's go for it, okay? The excerpt I have opens up with the line, Before I was shot, I always thought I was more half there than all there. I always suspected that I was watching TV instead of living life. Perfect opening. I it immediately grabbed my attention, and I also just really love that line, I always suspected that I was watching TV instead of living life. I find that speaks well to his proficiency within the movie medium, as well as video art medium, as well, I felt personally like I related to this quote because much of last year, as a lot of my friends and family know, as I was living in Portland, Oregon. I now currently am living in Montreal, but I decided to come back because 
I felt disconnected from everything. Like I, I literally felt like I was watching everything through a TV screen. It didn't feel sort of real. Like I felt like I was just watching all my friends and family have these experiences through the, well, technically, I guess it was literally a screen because I was watching it through my phone because of social media and the world we live in, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, so this first quote really just jumped at me. I thought it was a beautiful piece of writing as well. Moving on, the next quote that I sort of highlighted on the same page, um, it says, Right when I was being shot and ever since, I knew that I was watching television. The channel switch, but it's all television. What stood out to me about this quote was his moment of realization when he knew that he was watching TV. It wasn't a matter of just thinking he was watching life through TV or just sort of believing it. But now that moment of being shot, how jarring it was and how it fully threw him into this mindset of believing his life was television, that he was watching television and it's all television. It doesn't matter what's going on. It, it, it just is. I just like, I don't know. There was something about that that just sort of really caught my eye and made me be like, oh, that's really interesting. The next quote that I really found quite interesting was starting at the end of this page, and it goes on to the next page as well, but basically it says, At that point, in 1968, Andy Warhol Enterprises consisted of a few people who worked for me on a fairly regular basis. A lot of what you might call freelancers who worked on specific projects, and a lot of superstars, quote-unquote, or hyperstars, quote-unquote, or whatever you can call all the people who are very talented but whose talents are hard to define and almost impossible to market. Just that image of, like, Andy Warhol Enterprises and all the various factories he had with all these random people that were just always there, that, that image to me is, is so perfect. And I love, like, the way he says that their talents are hard to define and almost impossible to market. He's built himself this community of people who are incredibly talented, but there's no way to showcase their talent or market their talent. I mean, you can showcase it, obviously, but it was hard to market because of how hyper-specific it was. And I just really like that image in my head of seeing like Andy Warhol around all of these people with all these like really random talents, but he doesn't know how to like make anything of them. So sort of next, he goes on to talk about how an interviewer asked him about how he ran his office and what his response was, I tried to explain to him that I don't really run it. It runs me. I used a lot of phrases like, bring home the bacon. So he didn't really understand what I was talking about. To me, what's so perfect about this quote is he's playing with the guy who is interviewing him. He knows that this guy isn't going to understand what he's talking about. And he knows this guy isn't going to get it. So he would just say things that would sort of get this idea into the interviewer's head so that the interviewer could feel satisfied. But what he was telling him wasn't exactly what he was actually doing. And I like that sort of thought that he was open to the lack of control that existed in his offices and in his factories and the fact that like anything could just happen. And that was the art. That was a part of it. I just personally love so much how he existed within his own spaces. He existed as a viewer of his own work in a way, but his work was the people that were always milling about in his factories and in the offices and because those were the people that he would use as subjects within his work to inspire his work. So he was almost like a viewer to the creation of his work, if that makes any sense. Which is like, I, the, I just that idea, like, I really, really love that, how he's letting everything create itself around him. He just builds the space and it, it, it builds and it forms and, and he makes work out of that. Like, that's something that I really, I, I wish I could have an experience like that. I, it's something I, it's a goal of mine, I guess, to make sort of a community of artists like that. So that, that, excerpt of information really stood out to me because of that factor. 
So after that sort of excerpt, he talks a bit about business art. What he talks about is how he himself started as a commercial artist, and he wanted to finish his art career as a business artist, as he so called it. So he goes on to say, after I did the thing called art, or whatever it's called, I went into business art. I wanted to be an art businessman or a business artist. Being good in business is the most fascinating kind of art. During the hippie era, people put down the idea of business. They'd say, money is bad, and working is bad. But money is art, and working is art, and good business is the best art. I love that sort of last sentence of that little excerpt. And the reason for that being because it was such a unique viewpoint to have at the time. To see making money as art, and working as art, and good business as being the best art. Like, that wasn't, people weren't making art to make money, people were making art to say something. But in a way, he saw that making money as the art process itself, which just leads me to believe that is totally why he ended up being one of the most famous artists ever, is because of his different way that he viewed the world and the viewed even the art-making world as opposed to the regular world. So going forward, he goes on to say that we went from art right into business when we made an agreement to provide a certain theater with one movie a week. This made our movie-making commercial and led us from short movies into long movies into feature movies. I guess the reason I highlighted that last bit was mostly just because I didn't know that. I didn't know that's how we got into making feature movies. And I find that like sort of an interesting process that commercialization dictated his furthering of art practice. It, it dictated how he moved into the future of his art, if that makes any sense. Like he only became, it was as if he was only furthered as an artist because of his desire to commercialize his art. Alongside Andy's unique view of the art world through business art. He was also a very comedic artist in a way. He liked things to be funny. He liked when there was humor incorporated in his work and he liked to poke fun at other artists in the world. That humor and poking fun is another reason why I really like Andy Warhol as an artist, whether or not I like his work. That humor, I think, is something really fresh that, that you don't really get to see in art, or in the art world even. Artists love to not be funny. I don't know why that is. I used to want to make work that was funny. I, like, I, I, I don't really get why humor was so frowned upon a lot in the art world, and it still, it still sometimes is. So the reason I mention his humor is because he goes on to say, I always like to work on leftovers, doing the leftover things, things that were discarded, that everybody knew were no good. I always thought had a great potential to be funny. It was like recycling work. He saw these like discarded objects as things that could have humor. It wasn't even like, oh, I can make that into art. It was like, oh, that could be funny. Which was also a very different approach to art, like seeing discarded objects. There's artists that make work from discarded objects and found objects, but they see objects and they'll be like, oh, I can make art out of that. But Warhol, that's not what he was thinking. He was like, I can make that funny, which was so different to what so many artists were doing at the time. It wasn't about making things funny. It was about making good art but he just wanted to have a good time or and take the easy way out one of the other things i really liked about andy warhol was that he was very open about liking things to be easy which is not not pe people don't always value that people don't value easiness people think that character comes from hardship and character comes from when things are difficult but he saw that as the opposite he thought the easy way was the better way which i just thought was great in this excerpt, Andy talks about when he was watching old Esther Williams movies and there were hundreds of girls jumping off swings. And he said he would think about the auditions and all the people that didn't make it. What happened to all those takes and all that footage of the people who fell off the swings, or the people that messed up. And he said 
why weren't those things shows? Because he thought that those stuff would have been much funnier than the actual real scene where everything went right. And what I love about this is he's thinking about what isn't being shown. He's thinking about what is discarded or was seen as discarded and seeing how like he can produce something from that. What he is doing here is he's showing us that the things that we discard also have a special nature to them. They have things that are good about them and they have things that we can produce from. And basically what he goes on to say about that is, I'm not saying that popular taste is bad so that what's left over from the bad taste is good. I'm saying that what's left over is probably bad, but if you can take it and make it good or at least interesting, then you're not wasting as much as you could otherwise. So I just really like what he's saying here because what he's saying is that what is left over, it is bad. It was left over for a reason. That's why it wasn't in the final cut, but when you come in and take it and make it something good or interesting, then you're not wasting all that footage. That footage becomes something new. It becomes a new work of art and it becomes something that could potentially be humorous as he saw it. He saw that those outtakes as being funnier and more interesting even. He seemed to be really fascinated with recycling, recycling work and recycling people and running his business of art as a byproduct of other businesses, as he said. Next, he goes on to discuss what it was like living in New York at the time with all these artists creating and making work. And sort of what he says about that is, there are so many people here to compete with that. Changing your taste to what other people don't want is your only hope of getting anything. What he is discussing here is people's desire to be unique. They're, they want individuality. And there were so many artists making at the time that it was hard to find individuality. The reason I picked this quote and thought it was interesting was because it related again to my own experiences in the art world. I went to an arts high school and it was very competitive, very competitive. And there was always people making work. And I found my biggest struggle was trying to find the thing that differentiated me from other people, was to find the thing that stood out and to see that that was going on in the 60s within Andy Warhol's life and then seeing that parallel within my own. I just thought it was really cool. I just, yeah, I just thought it was a really interesting thing. Next, he goes on to talk about the actual feature movies that he would make. And what I love about his feature movies is exactly what I'm about to quote to you. I tried to simplify the movie making procedure. So I made movies where we used every foot of film that we shot because it was cheaper, easier, and funnier. I love this because I just thought it was classic Andy Warhol. The easier and the funnier, that was very much him and everything he embodied and in his work and in his life. And I also like that he was given this opportunity to make feature films, but was almost completely not financially qualified to make it. He had to work with what he had and what he had was just cheap video cameras and film. And when he would make his video pieces, he had to use up every last inch of what he had because there wasn't so much accessible to him. And so instead of using that as something that hindered him, he used it as something that made it, his work stronger. Like the simplicity of what he was doing made his work stronger, but that simplicity came from limitations. So that it was just a, a nice way for him to use what wasn't given to him. The next quote that I highlighted was sort of just a random sort of fun quote, but basically he says, I'm only kidding myself when I go through the motions of cooking protein. All I ever really want is sugar. I just really like the thought that he has a huge sweet tooth. That's something about that is funny to me, just that little weird detail about his personal life that he just really craved sugar I just, it's i don't know it made sense to me <laughs> compared to like all the other things that we've already discussed at this point in my reading of this excerpt i started thinking about 
how I don't always feel like creative and artistic hubs existed anymore as much as they did in Andy Warhol's time. Because Warhol had the factories and he had all these places that people were always hanging out. And I don't know, really know what it was, why it doesn't happen anymore. I guess we got like TikTok houses, <laughs> but at least that's not the same thing at all. <laughs> but I think maybe it was just Warhol's affinity to always having people around him. And in his space, he always wanted people to be by his side so that he could make work from them. The next quote sort of speaks to that idea very nicely. It says, I was curious about all these new people I was meeting who could stay up for weeks at a time without ever going to sleep. I thought, these people are so imaginative. I just want to know what they do, why they're so imaginative and creative, talking all the time, always busy, full of energy. How come they can stay up so late and not be tired? I, the childishness of this quote to me, there felt like there was a lot of like, child energy in this it was as if he was a little kid hanging with a bunch of big kids and he's just so fascinated by them the ironic thing is that most of the people who were around him were probably there to see him and saw him as the fascinating one so i just thought it was really interesting as he viewed these people around him as they would view him another moment that sort of speaks to his affinity for having people around and the hecticness of people always coming by the studio and his factories was when this one time he talks about how these two kids came by the studio and asked if they could do some work and what he did was ask them to transcribe and type his novel. He said it took the two kids a year to transcribe just one day. And in his words, that seems incredible to me now because I know that if they'd been any good, they'd have finished it in a week. I just love how he looked back on that moment with humor and not discontent because these kids weren't actually qualified to do what they were asked to do. Instead, he just liked how there were people around and people were coming by and were excited and wanted to do things and he just gave them something to do. It didn't matter if they were good or bad. It was just a matter of having people around. And to end off this excerpt from the philosophy of Andy Warhol, he begins to talk about the creation of his movie Sleep. And if those of you who don't know Sleep, it's a very long film that just features a man sleeping. That's, that's literally it. That's the entire film and it's called Sleep. And he created that film when observing all these people that would stay up for weeks at a time. Their sleep-deprived states and natured were what inspired the film. He also goes on to say, Another thing I couldn't understand was all those people who never slept who were always announcing, Oh, I'm hitting my ninth day, and it's glorious. So I thought, maybe it's time to do a movie about somebody who sleeps all night. What I wrote in my notes about that was that it was just such a mundane way for a film like Sleep to be conceived of. You expect it to be this big epiphany where it's like, oh, I'm going to make an eight-hour film that is like just a dude sleeping. Like that, I thought it would be this huge epiphany, but it was really just this moment of observing these other people and being like, hey, wouldn't that be interesting? Making the film Sleep was a lot more complicated than its actual conception. Basically, Andy Warhol only had a camera that had three minutes on it. So he had to change the camera every three minutes to shoot three minutes. And then he slowed down the movie to make up for all the three minutes that they lost changing the film, which is just abs absurd. Ab like absurd that they managed to create an eight hour movie from just three minute segment videos. Uh, like, I, I don't know. Another thing to me that is just very interesting about that movie in particular, but we could go do a whole other episode on sleep. Maybe I will. I've got a couple other Andy Warhol videos that I'm really interested in exploring and sharing. But on that note, we've come to the end of episode one. Oh my god. Wow. This is great. I love it. I thank you all for listening. If you made it this far, I hope you found any of it interesting. I certainly did. I had a good time. You can find links to places to find my art in the description of this episode. So I'd just like to finish this by thanking you all again. This has been 
I think that is interesting with your host, Ethan Wilder.